continuing our series in Delighting in Christ. And this morning we are going to be looking at uh, Delighting in His Sinlessness. Delighting in His Sinlessness. So uh, again, we're taking from, we're following John Owen in his uh, book, uh, Communion with God, and that section in there where he gives uh, a list of reasons, page after page of reasons why uh, it is why Christ is delightful to the Christian. And uh, the last couple weeks, you might have noticed that we were focusing a little bit more or emphasizing a little bit more on the deity of Christ, where uh, uh, his, in his divine nature, he is gracious and compassionate. And so his grace and compassion are eternal and infinite. And, uh, and then we looked last week at the love of Christ, where his love is eternal and infinite and perfect. And today, we're kind of transitioning to focus a little bit more now on the humanity of Christ, uh, and specifically this morning, delighting in his sinlessness. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking within the humanity of Christ at uh, his... Uh, his, I believe it's his compassion and his grace as a, as a fellow man, what that means. And then the week after that, uh, which will be fitting, uh, I think that will be Christmas Eve morning, we're going to be looking at delighting in Christ as both God and man uh, joined in one person. So it should be, uh, the Lord just orchestrated that. That wasn't any fancy scheduling on my part. It just worked out that way, so I'm, I'm glad that it will. But this morning, we're looking at delighting in his sinlessness. And uh, kind of the um, overarching thought or theme comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, uh, well, the whole verse says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But we're narrowing in and zooming in here on that little phrase, him who knew no sin. What does it mean that Christ knew no sin? Well, uh, John Owen, he proposes uh, the dilemma. He he proposes uh, the topic uh, this way. He says, speaking of our human sinful nature, he says, this whole nature was not only defiled, but also accursed, not only unclean, but also guilty, guilty of Adam's transgression, in whom we have all sinned. So he's speaking of fallen, sinful human nature. That the human nature of Christ should be derived from hence, or from that uh, human nature, that the human nature of Christ should be derived from hence, free of guilt, free from pollution, this is to be adored. So he, he's, what, what we're looking at here this morning is the wonder and the uh, amazement that we know what it's like to be human, right? We're, I think we're all human beings here this morning. You and I know what it's like to be human, and all that we can associate with being human is being a fallen, sinful human being. That's what it means to be human right now. It's not the essence of humanity, because humanity was made 
uh, without sin in the beginning. But nonetheless, that's all that we know. For thousands and thousands of years, that's all it has meant to be human. Aside from being made in the image of God, we are corrupted and fallen and sinful, depraved and guilty. And the wonder, the, the amazing thing about this doctrine of the sinlessness or the impeccability of Christ is that it was from that, it, it was that humanity that we associate with sinfulness it was that humanity that Christ took on. Not a sinful humanity, but humanity fully and completely. And so we need to work through how is it that Christ clothed himself with humanity without becoming a sinner by being human. We know that he was counted a sinner on the cross. We'll get to that later. But how is it that he lived a perfect life if he was human? We don't know any perfect humans, right? All humanity is sinful. So how can this be? The fact that Christ can be human and sinless, John Owen says, that is to be adored. That's what we want to look at. And now before he gets there, before we get there, uh, a challenge to the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ. Owen says, but you will say, how can this be? Who can bring a clean thing from an unclean? How can there be a sinless human from sinful humanity? How could Christ take our nature and not the defilements of it and the guilt of it? That's the question that we want to answer this morning. So first of all, sinless humanity. The sinless humanity of Christ we know, of course, that in his deity, Christ is sinless. I hope that I don't have to defend that for you. I hope that I don't have to prove to you that God in and of himself is perfect, holy, and without a, without a, a spot of sin. All right? But when it comes to his humanity, he is sinless. Now, first of all, this has to start in his birth. It has to start right from the beginning. So in his birth, Christ was sinless. That is, he was, as it were, protected from the sinfulness of what it means to be a human being. And we see this in one verse, in Luke 1, verse 35. It says, uh, the angel answered and said to her, this is uh, the angel of God, the messenger of God, coming to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she asked, how can this be, since I am a virgin? And here's his answer. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now this is speaking about the conception of, of Christ, the conception of the human nature of Jesus Christ. How could it be that Mary, being a virgin, would be with child? How is that possible? Well, it's, it's the work of God himself. The Holy Spirit 
the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, who is God, will come upon you. And uh, the idea here, uh, I would argue, uh, there is a throwback to the wording of uh, Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Uh, and the result of that is uh, as God, through Christ, creates the world in the beginning uh, the Holy Spirit is the animating factor, the life giver of creation, and because all members of the Trinity were involved in creation. That's a whole other thing. But nonetheless, I believe that's a throwback to Genesis 1, where the Holy Spirit is doing what he's always been doing. He's, he is giving life. He's creating life. So that's where the life comes from. It comes from God himself. The power of the Most High, he says, will overshadow you. Again, a throwback to Genesis 1, I would argue. And for that reason, so because, uh, because the Most High is the source and the Holy Spirit, who is God, is the source, for that reason, because of that, the result is the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, he, what he's saying here is the Son of God is being connected, the, the, the title, the Son of God, is connected to being the Son of the Most High. And this Holy Child, this Holy One, is the result of Him being uh, created by the Holy Spirit. So the holiness of the child, the holiness of that human nature of Jesus Christ, the holiness of him uh, is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. So he is sinless. He is holy. He is set apart from sin. That's what it means. It's an aspect of holiness. An aspect of holiness is sinlessness. The Holy Spirit is without sin. And so what he produces uh, in the womb of Mary is without sin as well. Does that make sense? The, the, the connection is in the source. The, 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 the reason for the holiness or the sinlessness of Christ is connected to the holiness or the sinlessness of the source of that creation, which is the Holy Spirit. And even... Apart from that connection, just the mere title, the Holy Child, is a declaration of the human nature, uh, the perfect, sinless human nature of Jesus Christ. We know that he is sinless, not just by logical deduction, not just by thinking this through as, you know, as we just did, the Holy Spirit creating the Holy Child, but in the declaration and the, and the description that is given by the angel about this one, he's called the Holy Child. So, and what, what does that mean? He is called the sinless child. The, 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 this child, this one who is set apart from humanity, though part of humanity, distinct and set apart in his humanity. And uh, the LSB translates this holy child 
Other translations translate this the holy thing or the holy one. Uh, that's because it's a neuter. It, it, it could be talking about just the, the, the human nature itself. The human nature itself, not necessarily yet the, the person. The personhood is the son of God. But the nature of this person is, uh, is holiness, is, is, is holy. Though human, he is holy. He is without sin. So right from the beginning, we have this declaration of the sinlessness of Christ. And we have an explanation here also of how is that possible? How can, uh, how can a, a sinful person, namely Mary, remember she is a sinner because she declared Christ to be her Savior. Only sinners need saviors, right? So Mary herself being a sinner, how can a sinner... Um, Produce, as it were, or bear someone that is sinless. It doesn't add up. The way is because she didn't produce Christ. God did. The Holy Spirit did. It was, he is the result of the power of the Most High God. Questions or thoughts? Yes, in the back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our favorite verse, right? Uh, uh, John 3.16. His only begotten Son. And uh, elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, he is described as the so-called Son of Joseph. So he's not actually the Son of Joseph. He's an adopted Son of Joseph. He, Joseph essentially, um, technically, adopted uh, Jesus as his own Son, uh, in, in a sense. Uh, but strictly speaking, the begottenness, where he came from, his source of, of uh, being, uh, is derived from the Father. And this is how it's been uh, since eternity past, and this is how it plays out in, in time here uh, in Bethlehem. Any other thoughts or questions? I know this is... Uh, Adam was, yeah, aside from Adam, yeah, he was Adam and Eve, of course. Uh, Adam and Eve were the only two that ever experienced what it was like to not be a sinner uh, until Christ, until Christ. He had no original sin. So uh, we get our sinfulness uh, through our federal head, Adam, right? Our sinfulness comes from our connection to or comes from the fact that we are descendants of the sinner, the first sinner, Adam and Eve. And so we, we, that carries through all generations to us. Um, but Christ is, his federal head is not Adam. Uh, he doesn't get his source. He is not uh, technically, well, I don't want to say he's not of the lineage of Adam because, you know, the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke would, would differ, would have something to say about that. Uh, but as far as uh, getting his, where does he get his human nature from? Where does he, where did he originate from? What, what's the cause? It wasn't the cause of two sinners coming together in marriage 
and procreating. It's the, he, he is the result of the direct creation of the Most High God. So he doesn't derive that sinfulness from Adam like we do. Good. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. So we kind of just went from, you know, we bypassed the, the, that, that, uh, those nice steps that you get into the pool. We bypassed, we bypassed those nice steps and just dove right in on the deep end. Uh, so now uh, some more maybe familiar or, or uh, more easily understandable uh, uh, aspects of this. So in his birth, he's sinless, and in his life, he's sinless. In his life, he is sinless. What does it mean that Christ in his life was sinless? Well, it means, according to one theologian, this means that every type of temptation that, that we face, temptations to wrongfully indulge natural desires of body and mind, temptations to evade moral and spiritual issues, temptations to cut moral corners and take easy ways out, Temptations to be less than fully loving and sympathetic and creatively kind to others. Temptations to become self-productive, uh, self-protective, excuse me, and self-pitying, and so on. Those temptations came upon him, came upon Christ, but he yielded to none of them. That's what it means. Now, there's some biblical evidence for that. First Peter. 1 Peter 2, 22. Somebody read that for us nice and loud. Who did no sin, or was any deceit found in his mouth. All right. This is, of course, speaking of Christ, our Savior. He did no sin. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Why? What significance about the, the mouth and what's the connection between mouth and, and, and sinfulness? Uh, what does scripture say about the role that the mouth plays when it comes to sin? Out of the mouth? Deceitful thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Out, out of the mouth comes the things of the heart, right? Um, so if no deceit was found in his mouth, that means there's no deceit in his heart. That's what it means. There was no lie in him. There was no falsehood or a shading of the truth or no white lie or anything like that, however you want to call it. No, no exaggeration for the sake of making a point, right? Everything that he said was true. And so that means, I mean, Christian, you can go back to the Gospels and read what he says, and it is completely true. It's completely true. And you can trust everything that's there. Um, Christ is your perfect and spotless shepherd. He's the, the perfect uh, uh, deliverer of truth to you. And so you can trust him and take him at his word. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 as well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
So again, he knew no sin. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't know about sin, right? Because God is omniscient. That is, he knows all things. So he knows about sin. It's not like we're down here on this earth and sitting and, and, and we're getting away with it. God knows every sin of the mind and the heart of every man. That's terrifying. Your thoughts and your motivations are laid bare before the all-seeing God. He knows every sin. So what does it mean that he knew no sin? It means that he did not have an acquaintance. He did not have a relationship with sin as a human being. Being the God-man as Jesus Christ, he did not become acquainted with sin. He became acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 says. But he didn't become acquainted or have a relationship or get to know on a personal level sin. And that's how opposite, how, how foreign that is to us. We know sin very well, don't we? We're well acquainted with sin. And, and more than what we're comfortable with, more than what we would like, aren't we? We are, we are very familiar with that old friend, sin. We used to call him a friend, didn't we? But if you're a child of God, he is now, as it were, sin is your enemy. But you have a history, right? Christ is not like that. He does not have a friendship. He did not have a relationship. He did not know experientially what it was like to sin. N not in one moment. Uh, Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was, that is one, uh, we have a high priest who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Tempted in all things. Again, what Jay Packer wrote earlier. He was tempted in every way. Uh, every type of temptation that we face. Again, temptations to wrongfully indulge natural desires of body and mind, to evade moral spirit and spiritual issues, to cut moral corners, to take easy ways out, to be less than fully loving or sympathetic or kind to others. Uh, temptations to become self-protective, self-pitying, self-focused, selfish. And, and the list goes on. All kinds of temptations. Every classification of temptation he experienced. And yet, without sin. Never once giving in to a, a, a moral shortcut. Or to a, a fleeting thought. Or to a, a self-protective. He was never sinfully self-protective. Or self-pitying. He never played the victim card. Uh, he, he never did any of those things. He never uh, had an opportunity to be kind to somebody but held back. 
He never had the opportunity to speak truth in love, but held back. Uh, he never had a wayward thought or desire of body or mind. I mean, this, this, this Savior is spotless in every sense of the word. Now we might think, well, you know, he was like a spiritual superman walking around this world. All the temptations just came to him and just bounced right off. And, and it wasn't very difficult for him because he knew no sin. He could not sin. Those things are true. Uh, but it does not, mean, does not mean that he didn't have to fight against sin. He did not have to uh, fight against those temptations. He didn't have to fight against his own sinful flesh because he had no sinful flesh, no sinful nature. But what about those temptations from without that came upon him, especially in the desert when he was with uh, being tempted by, by the devil? Well, uh, one theologian, Donald McLeod, uh, says, Far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation... Right, so this, we're not saying that his struggle with temptation was short or painless. Rather, it involved him in prote uh, protracted resistance. What does that mean, protracted resistance? He explains, precisely because he did not yield easily. He didn't give in easily and was not like us in easy prey, Right? I mean, you and I, when temptation comes, sometimes it's just like, you know, we, 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 we keel over like a wet noodle, right? It's just, there's no resistance to temptation sometimes, unfortunately. It's the opposite with Christ. Uh, the devil, he says, had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources in the temptation of Christ. The devil doesn't have to try very hard with you, Christian. He had to pull out all the stops with Christ, though. The very, the very fact, Donald goes on, the very fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of temptation's ferocity. Against us, a little temptation suffices. Against him... Satan found himself forced to push himself to his limits. Wow. How glorious, how wonderful this, our, our, our champion of our souls is. This is your Savior. No, uh, yes, he's gentle, he's meek, and he's lowly, he's approachable, but he's a champion of champions. He is a warrior that, that is on the front lines for you. He did this for you. You are behind him in this, in this spiritual warfare. He won the victory by, by, by uh, taking on the full brunt of the force of satanic temptation. He did that and withstood the full brunt of that power so that you behind him, in the, in the view of God, you standing behind him can uh, have his victory. You can have his sinlessness. 
So in his life, he was absolutely sinless. And this doesn't mean that he had the easy way out. Oh, far from it. And uh, John Newton um, has this wonderful um, application of this truth. He says, he knows our sorrows, not merely as he knows all things, but as one who has been in our situation and who, though without sin himself, endured when upon earth inexpressibly more for us than he will ever lay on us. Oh, Christian, all your sorrows and your temptations, every, every difficulty of life, he experienced in an inexpressible degree. And to you, he turns and allows and, and gives uh, not what he experienced, but rather what you are able to bear, right? He does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear, it says. Why? Because he absorbed all of the, the, the brunt force of the temptation for you. And he stood. And so now the temptation that God allows to come your way is not to break you, but to strengthen your walk. So yes, you can bear. You can bear it because it comes from the sovereign hand of God. Now, uh, not only in his life, that is in his resistance to temptation, but also actively or positively, he is sinless in his humanity, in his obedience. In his obedience. That is, he was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly righteous. Again, J.I. Packer says, this means not only that he never disobeyed the Father, but also that he loved God's law and found wholehearted joy in keeping it. Wow. It's not just that he didn't sin, but it was the perfection, right, of Christ. That is beautiful. Matthew 3.15 uh, Jesus answered and said to him, permitted at this time, uh, uh, context, excuse me, is Matthew is before John the Baptist and he's, he's uh, telling John the Baptist to baptize him, uh, the Son of God, in flesh. And John the Baptist says, <laughs> you need to baptize me. <laughs> you know, this is, we got things backwards here. What do you mean, baptize you? Well, Jesus gives the reason why he ought to be baptized. He said, permit it at this time. That is, that is, it's right for this moment. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, that is, to be baptized. So Christ, right from the beginning of his ministry, fulfilled all righteousness that is he fulfilled and accomplished performed did everything that a righteous jewish follower of god 
was expected to do. One of those things was to enter the waters of baptism to signify repentance uh, and, and uh, uh, consecration, devotion wholeheartedly to God. And Christ says, well, I don't have any sin to repent of, essentially, but, uh, but if this is what's expected of you as a Jewish believer, then I'm going to do this as well. So everything that the Father expects of you, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. That's why you stand before him. That's why you stand before God. Righteous. You're not perfectly righteous, but he is, and you're in him. Uh, John 8, 29 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. This is the words of Christ. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I don't know anybody that can say that except for Christ. Always. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. To who? That's God, the Father. So every situation, every instance, every moment of the day, Christ says, I always do what is pleasing to my Father. Wow. So Christ lived this life that just had this wave of, after wave after wave of righteousness. And this, 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 uh, these, as it were, these, these, the plumes of, of smoke from this fragrant aroma that he was offering throughout his life kept billowing up, as it were, into heaven, being a pleasing aroma to God the Father. That was his whole perpetual life, was this wonderful uh, exhibition of sacrifice and devotion to God. It was this, this ongoing sacrifice uh, of God at, that, that echoes back from the temple where God would be pleased with the sacrifice of the temple. But now Christ, every moment of the day, is offering himself as a, this, this perpetual sacrifice, a life of worship to God, constantly pleasing the Father, constantly offering to him obedience and righteousness and pleasure. So that is how the Father views him. The Father views Christ as pleasing. And that's what he announces in Matthew 3 as well as other passages. There was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Father declares of his Son, Jesus Christ, I am well pleased with this one. He, he, I, am, I delight in my Son. So Christian, I, I, I reason with you. If the Father, the, the Almighty God, looks upon Christ and, he, and upon looking at Christ, the Father is able to be delighted. The Father is able to be sufficiently pleased. Then certainly there's enough capacity in Christ for you to look upon 
and to find great delight in him as well. If he can fill the heart of God, the Father, with delight, I think he can fill your heart with delight. Um, John Owen says, Such was he, such is he. I like that. Such was he, such is he. He's still this, sinless. And yet, for our sakes, he was contented not only to be esteemed by the vilest of men to be a transgressor, but he was also contented to undergo from God the punishment due to the vilest of sinners. So not only was he happy and willing to be considered a vile transgressor of the law by the vilest of men, but he was also willing to undergo from God the punishment that was due, not him, because he was sinless, but he was willing to undergo from God the punishment that was due you and I, the vilest of sinners. And that brings us to our second point, the sinless sacrifice. The sinless sacrifice. Now a few points under this. Christ as our sinless sacrifice uh, this is significant because uh, he is our, first of all, our spotless lamb. He's our spotless lamb. God, uh, going all the way back to the Old Testament, required, demanded that his people offer a sacrifice for their sins in order for them to be accepted and acceptable to God a uh, life had to be given because the wages of sin is death. And so, if you want to be acceptable for God, somebody has to die. And God, uh, anticipating the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, set in place uh, a program of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And What's striking is God didn't just allow them to offer any old sacrifice, any old goat they found on the side of the road. It was very strict. Uh, in Leviticus 22, it says, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel who brings near his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their freewill offerings, which they bring near to Yahweh for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted. That's, that's key. You want to be accepted before me, right? For you to be accepted, it must be a male without blemish from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not bring it near for it will not be accepted for you. Right? And I would argue that this for, that this is substitutionary atonement, right? God is saying, I will, for the time being, in, as it were, in, in, in an act of 
redemptive credit, uh, as it were, a redemptive credit card. I, I will charge. I will not charge you um, uh, for your sin because I know that my son is coming. But uh, in lieu of my son coming first, right now I'm going to uh, provide these these animals to be sacrificed uh, that that look forward to my son. And these animals, as as it were. Uh, a stand-in for my son. These sacrifices are how you're going to be accepted. And you want me to accept you? Well, then uh, I have to, because you're a sinner, somebody has to die, right? And so for me to accept you, uh, that death that you should die must be suffered by the sacrifice. And so that has to be an acceptable sacrifice, though. It has to be accepted for you, accepted uh, in your stead. If it's not good enough, then you're back you know, to square one where you're under the wrath of God. But for it to be accepted for you or in your stead, in your place, then it must be spotless. It must be a male without blemish. In order for there to be a proper substitution for sin, the thing sacrificed, the one sacrificed, can, uh, must be without blemish. It must be spotless. Now, this has, this has been uh, how it's always been. This has always been uh, the expectation of God. Why? Well, because he knew that his son was coming. And 1 Peter 1 tells us this. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your fathers, your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So how were you redeemed? How were you purchased from the fate of judgment? How were you purchased from slavery and guilt to sin? Well, you weren't redeemed. You weren't bought with silver or gold. What's striking is he, he calls silver or gold corruptible things. Well, in all this world, the, the least corruptible things are silver and gold. Those are the things that stand the test of time. But he classifies even those precious metals as corruptible things in light of the incorruptible and spotless, unblemished, uh, blood of Christ. You were redeemed. You were set free from sin with all of its guilt and its power and one day even its presence. You are set free not by any good works, not by any amount of uh, tithing or offerings or gold or silver. Nothing could set you free from that, Christian. Only precious blood. I like that. It's precious blood. It, it's, 
this, this, uh, this adjective, precious, is what should be describing silver or gold, right? But he says, no, that silver or gold, that, that is, uh, that's corruptible. What's really precious is the, the, the blood of Christ. That's what's precious. That's what's valuable. And, uh, and, and that's what was offered in your place. That's the price that God was willing to pay to redeem his people. Oh, how wonderful. How uh, sweet that is to our ears, isn't it? Now, how is this accomplished? Well, our sins had to be imputed to Christ. Our sins imputed. So Christ, being the spotless lamb, being the sinless one, why did he die on the cross as a sinner? If he wasn't a sinner himself, if Jesus was spotless, if he was not a sinner, then why did he die a sinner's death on the cross? The answer is our sins were imputed to him. Our sins were transferred in the uh, economy of God. It were, they were transferred to his account. Our debt was transferred to the account of the righteous one. Now, uh, again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, we take in the whole verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that's what it means. He was, he was sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This doesn't mean that he became a sinner uh, earlier on, well, before I butcher it, uh, let me read from the context. I think it's important enough. I think we have enough time as well. Second Corinthians 5. Uh, in verse 19, it says that God was in Christ, what he was doing there on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. Right? So how did he reconcile uh, sinners to himself? Well, he, 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 he did that by... First of all, not counting their transgressions against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Well, who did he count their transgressions against? That's what is answered in verse 21. So when he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, what he's saying there is, in the context, is he counted him to be sin. He counted our sin against his son. He charged our sin against the spotless one on the cross. 
so that we might be counted as righteousness. You don't become completely righteous and you go on throughout your life just doing only righteous deeds, right? No, that's not what he's saying here. You are counted in the eyes of God. You are counted as having the righteousness of God. How? In him, by faith in Christ. So when the sinner repents, turns away from his sin, and turns towards Christ in full faith and obedience, uh, receiving him or accepting him, recognizing him as his Lord and Savior, what God does is he, gives, he, he accomplishes this great transaction where my sinfulness is accounted to Christ and his righteousness that we just looked at is accounted to me. And so there's what's called the great exchange, the great trade. And, and, and we trade it up. That, that's the reality of it. We trade it up. Uh, okay, we got to finish up here. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he was manifested in order to take away sins. And in, in him, there is no sin. So how did he take away sins? Well, he was that spotless uh, scapegoat, right? Where our sins were transferred onto him and he was released into the wilderness, as it were, right? Remember uh, in Leviticus 16. He was released into the wilderness, taking away the guilt and the sin from us. How could he bear that? Well, because there was no original sin in him. In him there is no sin. How could he take on or receive the sinfulness of all of the elect? Well, because he had no spot of sin within him. And so he could take it all and take it away. And... Uh, well, that was what's announced by John the Baptist in John 1.21. When on the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He got it. Right from first sight. He, he knew the result. He knew why Jesus was there. Uh, and Christ, our spotless Lamb, had our sins imputed to him. And so now he is our sinless high priest. Our sinless high priest. So he remains sinless. Uh, he was the sacrifice, but he was also the high priest offering the sacrifice. He offered himself, Scripture says. And why is that important? Why point this out? Well, the Bible points it out, and that's one, but why? Hebrews seven twenty-five to 26 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, what kind of high priest? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and now exalted above the heavens. So why is it so important that as a high priest, he is holy, innocent, undefiled, 
and separated from sinners. That is, why is it important that he's a sinless high priest? Well, what did the high priest do? He offered sacrifices. And uh, why did he offer sacrifices? For the sake of salvation. So because he, as the high priest, was holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, his salvation in his sacrifice is perfect. Because he didn't have to, the context says, he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for, first for himself because he was a sinner. That's what the Old Testament saying, uh, uh, high priest had to do. They had, a, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves and then a sacrifice for the people. Christ didn't have to do that. He just offered himself as the sacrifice. And it was perfect and acceptable. And he remains perpetually sinless as the God-man. Right? We, we, we understand he's always, always has been, always will be sinless because he's God. But what about in his humanity? Well, he is perpetually, ongoingly, eternally sinless as well. Why is that important? Because that salvation of yours is eternal. It's forever. He's able to save you forever because he's still sinless. And so the results are, 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 are the... Um, the twofold, the, the, the two uh, benefits of a high priest, the two benefits of the high priest are one, this drawing near, right? So communion with God, and then also intercession, right? Intercession, that is uh, uh, having a, a representative so that we can remain acceptable to God. Christian, you have both. And, and your ability, your access to draw near to God is full and complete and perfect because he is perfect and sinless. And you don't have to worry about God changing his mind or becoming fed up with you because you've failed just too much this time. Because your high priest is sinless and he remains there still interceding for you. Still being your representative. Still showing his wounds to the Father. And saying, don't judge him. Don't judge her. Don't cast him off. My, my, my sacrifice still stands. I am still an eternal high priest, sinless, standing before the presence of God the Father. And I bring in my people with me into the very presence of God. Christian, you ought to delight in the sinlessness of Christ. He is beautiful. Uh, just in and of himself, what he is as a sinless, as the sinless God-man, that should be attractive to your soul. But on top of that, what he did for you, that he... Though he was spotless, didn't, didn't recoil at the idea of taking on all of your spots, right? You, you, you know, you, you get dressed up and you get all, all, all dolled up or all dressed up for a nice night out. And, and you're very careful about, you know, the, if you rub up against a, a, a 
a dirty wall or um, that wall that says wet paint on it. You stay clear or whatever it might be. You don't go and, and do yard work, you know, in a suit and tie. I, I hope you don't. Or in your nice dress. When you get all dressed up like that, you want to stay as clean as possible for as long as possible, right? Uh, not so with our Savior. He was perfect, spotless, without one stain. And you know, what the t- when the time came for him to go to the cross, to take on all of your filth, he didn't shirk back. He didn't recoil. He, he went forward. He, 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 as it were, lunged into the cross. Now, for your sake and for my sake. What a beautiful Savior, isn't he? One last quote. Christ's love is not only sweeter than wine, but better than life. And he is most lovely. He is altogether lovely. He is most lovely. He is altogether lovely. I trust that your heart is uh, a little more uh, drawn to your Savior this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this spotless one. You gave him to us. What a generous God you are, that you would, you would hand him over to the, to the hands of sinners, that he might die a sinner's death, that he might die in our place, though spotless and without sin himself. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. We uh, help us, Lord, to to see you more uh, in all your beauty and splendor. Lord, help us to be drawn towards you in, in our hearts and minds. And Lord, may we find great comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us this way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.